What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest this morning is Benjamin Weber. Benjamin Weber is an assistant professor of African American and African Studies at the University of California, Davis. He has worked at the Vera Institute of Justice, Alternate Roots, the Marcus Garvey and UNIA Paper Project, and as a public high school teacher in East Los Angeles. He lives in Davis, California. His book that we are discussing today is American Purgatory, Prison Imperialism, and the Rise of Mass Incarceration. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ben. Thanks for having me, Kat. It's an honor to be here. All right, Ben, I actually want to start a little bit with the personal. How did you come to focus on African American and African studies? Yeah. Um, you know, I really, it's been a long journey, um, but I've always felt that it provides the missing framework, um, the best way to address social and political problems, um, because it takes racism seriously. Um, and, you know, I think the way that I came to it, um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I was involved with environmental justice and racial justice issues in high school. Um, attending summits and youth summits on things like the toxic dump in Bayview Hunters Point and volunteering at Glide and the Tenderloin and participating in, um, you know, youth movements there in the Bay. Um, but I think it was really in college. My college roommate's uh, father is a very famous Black Studies professor, the late, great Clyde Woods. Um, and I think it was really his work that opened my eyes um, to a kind of framework um, that really goes in search of root causes, that looks at the international dimensions of things, the transnational dimensions, and attends to the lives of Black people all over the world. Um, and I, you know, I'm just really came to be convinced by the Black feminist proposition that Black people's liberation holds the key to liberating everyone. That's actually a perfect segue into my next question. I spent some time uh, last year with the um, Black Collaborative Studies Group at UC Berkeley and really wrestling with folks that were like really steeped in there, you know, as as undergrads and graduate students, Black folks, about the role of academia in the pathway to Black liberation, Hmm. Um, the limitations and the opportunities. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think it's always been um, a fraught relationship, um, like you're saying, and I think leaning into those tensions um, has always been productive. So, of course, um, you know, the the movement um, of Black Studies there at Berkeley and also where I teach um, came out of the student activism um, in 68. And uh, I think that really held a lot of promise for transforming the university. And I think people are rightly frustrated um, that a lot of those promises are still unfulfilled. Um, But I think, you know, Black people have always um, pressured the university to be um, more, and especially public universities, um, to kind of tear, break down the walls, the divides between um, academia, as you say, and, and the community. It's always been um, rooted in the principle that um, knowledge is co-created from the ground up, that credentialed experts don't hold, you know, the supposed answers, and that, um, you know, there's a, a style of trying to solve problems and and help that 
that in fact not only hasn't been helpful, but it's done a lot of harm. All right, Ben, let's dig into this book. Um, I want to start with the definition. What is prison imperialism and at what point in United States history was it born? Yeah. Um, you know, the the book takes the long and, and broad view of prison imperialism. And so, um, you know, the short definition is that it's the kind of spread of these um, technologies of social control um, and that are particular um, in the, the prison system, um, both within and beyond U.S. borders. Um, and, you know, there are different ways to trace it, but one way um, is, you know, began even before the Constitution was ratified, you know, um, as Black people and people in prison will tell you the slave ship is really America's archetypal prison. Um, and the way that it, you know, confined and, and profited and, and forcibly transported um, human beings. And uh, the provision for using slavery and involuntary servitude in the as punishment for crime began with the Northwest Ordinance in 1787, projecting that into territories that were not yet part of the United States, but that were under U.S. jurisdiction. Um, and that was carried forward famously in the Convict Clause of the 13th Amendment, um, which was made famous by documentaries like 13th um, in 1865. But that, you know, provision allowing for prison slavery, um, you know, is is probably the the longest lasting and farthest reaching piece of federal prison policy. So, you know, one thing that um, tracing the kind of roots and the um, international dimensions of prison imperialism shows is that, you know, that uh, became a mechanism to uh, spread U.S. style structural racism to places all over the world. So places under U.S. Uh, jurisdiction and control, places like uh, Puerto Rico and Panama and the Philippines. Thanks. I, I want to next move on to the story of the Black Fort. Given the context of the period of time we are talking about, what was Black Fort and why was it a threat to the state? Yeah. Um, so the story story of the Black Fort um, was uh, it's a maroon community, uh, you know, really beacon of freedom um, in Spanish claimed but seminal controlled Florida um, territory, uh, and. It basically became a refuge for um, runaways from slavery in the South um, and from uh, and for indigenous and black placemaking. Um, so they were building a alternate vision of freedom, a different way of being in community, a different way of um, building spaces. Um, and the you know the threat that it posed was um, that it was you know, um, a defiantly anti-slavery community, um, you know, at the beginning of the 19th century. Can you say more about the types of activities, political thought, um, the types of place making that was happening at Black Fort? Yeah, it was an incredibly international community because of the way that um, enslaved people were brought from different um, regions uh, and spoke different languages and also the ways that, um, you know, seminal people had uh, welcomed and, and incorporated um, Black Maroons and, and fugitives from slavery. Um, it was led by 
people who had experience um, in the British colonial marines, in the French colonial um, armies, you know, it was really part of the Caribbean and in, in this, as well as being uh, part of the continental North America um, in terms of the flows of, of people. Um, and of course, it incorporated all of the knowledge bearers and healers and cultural workers that um, were forcibly taken uh, from their homelands and then managed managed to escape. And you know, there are different ways of of thinking about the flows of knowledge um, around the Caribbean at the time. But you know, I'm sure it was influenced by um, you know the Haitian Revolution going on and and which created the first black anti-slavery black republic in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and there were all kinds of circuits of, you know, political knowledge, cultural knowledge, um, and spiritual ways of opposing uh, slavery and and what were the kind of early roots of racial capitalism. And how did the state respond, Ben? What happened to Black Fort? Yeah, this is the you know in the opening of the book, it's it's a really tragic um, story, and uh, but. The U.S. Army, um, you know, under Andrew Jackson's orders during what was, you know, came to be called the Seminole Wars, invaded, Spanish claimed, and Seminole controlled Florida, bombed the Black Fort, um, hunted down the survivors, um, and tried and hung the leaders, you know, and and in the book, it, it talks about how that represented, you know, a different and, and in its place, um, you know, there, there was the rise of, of Fort Marion where, um, you know, generations of people, indigenous people were held captive, um, separated from their families and this kind of thing. And, you know, that struggle over placemaking, um, uh, it was, you know, it was the use of outsized violence in a foreign territory um, to kind of produce a different vector of placemaking, a different cornerstone of, of prison imperialism, um, which is the kind of use of outsized racial violence in um, controlling people and subduing freedom movements. Ben, one of the things that like, I really appreciate about the book is that it connects the dots from past to present, right? And, and how we understand our current context of mass incarceration with its roots. Um, and there's two themes in this piece of the book that stood out to me. First, this fear of white folks um, being outbred, if you would allow me to be so crass, by black folks or folks of color. Can you tug on that thread from then to now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it shows up in a in a few different places. You know, uh, what what you're talking about is even as um, kind of there's a white nationalist stream that talks about being the majority or is very concerned about, you know, whiteness um, and white supremacy, maintaining white supremacy through kind of demographic means. So it really begins um, with what, you know, the the second chapter of the book talks about the Jefferson Monroe penal doctrine and um, Jefferson's concern that blot or mixture, right? The concern with the racial makeup um, of the Republic and the use of the search for a penal colony, a national penal colony, to basically make racial segregation take uh, territorial as well as institutional and legal form, and and all the way up through, you know, other other examples of that, um, the kind of white supremacist fear of being 
outnumbered, you know, comes up uh, later, you know, in the 60s and 70s when Malcolm X is talking about, you know, moving the movement from a civil rights frame to a human rights frame. Um, and he says, you know, because white people are a microscopic minority on the world stage. And, uh, and of course, you know, the, the ongoing reckoning, you know, there's another piece in the book where Claudia Jones, who's a black Marxist theorist is writing to, um, Ben Davis, who's another black Marxist involved in creating various defense campaigns in the fifties. And she, you know, she writes, uh, that the United States has yet to reckon with the kind of, um, world historic shift, uh, that, uh, was put in place by decolonization. Um, and I think that's, you know, another element of this, both, you know, the, the legacy and the, and the ongoing consequences is white racist fear of being, you know, the knowledge of the kind of moral precariousness of being a tiny, albeit ultra-violent minority on the world stage. Ben, same thread tugging and around this idea of violence, right? The the way that you paint the picture of how brutal the destruction of Black Fort was, this idea that violence is the way you keep communities of color in line and maintain the status quo that is the most fiscally beneficial to the ruling class. As I read about the assault on Black Fort, I couldn't help but thinking of the bombing of the MOVE community in Philadelphia in 1985, right? The intentional, complete, and most possible violent obliteration of a Black community that dared to assert their self-determination as a warning to others. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I think one of the ways to think about that connection and, and one of the things um, is the way that, you know, racial violence is also a colonial technology of control. And so the use of outsized violence, not just to uh, cause harm to that particular community, but to as a strategy for a kind of counterinsurgency strategy for controlling um, or attempting to control wider segments of the population. So, you know, interestingly, the, in the Philippines, you know, during that period of U.S. occupation and colonial rule, they were obsessed with trying to find and stamp out the rise of messianic leaders, the rise of a messiah who would be capable of, of uniting and leading a revolutionary movement, an independence movement, an anti-colonial movement against U.S. occupation. Which we hear again in the 60s and 70s, right? Exactly yeah. right. So the Black Messiah with Fred Hampton. And and one of the, the principles of counterinsurgency is, is about population control. So it's about intimidating people who have not yet joined the revolutionary struggle. And there's this memo from um, one of, you know, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI agents under, you know, the illegal COINTELPRO uh, program that was trying to uh, surveil and, and kill Black activists. And it says, you know, any we, that they need to convince youth and moderates that if they succumb to revolutionary teaching, they'll be dead revolutionaries. So they're not just going after things like move, but the outsized violence, you know, is a tool of counterinsurgency strategy to try to really intimidate and traumatize wider segments of the population. Right. Ben, the attack on Black Fort and invasion of Florida marked the beginning of the first Seminole War. Can you talk about the ways in which uh, the United States utilized the premise of chasing so-called criminals, right, Black criminals, um, as a way to also seize and develop new territories? Yeah. 
there's a, a few ways, you know, in the, the Fugitive uh, Slave Act and the Fugitive Slave Law, you know, charged the U.S. Marshal Service um, early on with um, chasing people into territories that were not yet part of the United States um, and, and places that had, you know, at least officially outlawed um, slavery. And that's what's kind of significant about, or, I mean, there are many things, but one of the things that's significant about projecting um, the use of slavery and involuntary servitude into territories that otherwise outlawed it is that that made using prisons, prison expansion um, as a way to, to claim and develop new territories um, or, or they're doing more than just, um, you know, building infrastructure and all of that when they're projecting prison slavery into territories that are not part of the U.S., what they're doing is using a prison system and that, you know, false equation of blackness with criminality, blackness with slavery. They're using that to actually produce racial hierarchy um, and to structure racial hierarchy in places like, you know, across uh, North America, but also, you know, in places like the Panama Canal Zone, where the prison population quickly became majority black. In this case, um, you know, migrant workers from Barbados and Martinique and Jamaica and Haiti. But they, in the canal zone, you know, the one of the ways that they exported and structured, uh, exported U.S. structural racism was by using highly visible and degrading uh, physical toil, right? Like chain gangs um, to build roads. It wasn't just about the usefulness or supposed usefulness of those roads. It was about producing racial hierarchy, um, showing everyone that, you know, this is, you know, a, a prison system that's 80% black and that those black people are forced to do unfree, you know, to do prison slavery on road gangs, that that has an effect on, on everyone who sees it. Um, and that that's not natural or normal, but that is actually part of exporting this system. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Benjamin Weber about his book, American Purgatory, Prison, Imperialism, and the Rise of Mass Incarceration. Ben, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I, I, I want you to dive a little bit deeper into um, what was the Jefferson Monroe Penal Doctrine? Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a way of of thinking about uh repeated attempts to create a national penal colony across the 19th century. Um, and it's a way to think about the relationship between prison policy and foreign policy. Um, and so, you know, in the wake of Gabriel's revolt, a uh, slave uprising in Virginia that took place um, right at this around the same time as the Haitian Revolution, as the you know revolution was going on in Haiti that created the first Black Republic um, in the Western Hemisphere. Monroe uh, writes to Jefferson and says, "We need to find a non-contiguous territory. We need to find an island, essentially, in the Caribbean or elsewhere, to transport people um, who are deemed criminal." And uh, you know, and one of the interesting things is. They didn't end up finding, you know, there were a series of proposals and they made it through state legislatures and it made it up through, you know, Congress, um, Committee on Territories. And, you know, and then when the purchase of Alaska, it was rumored that this was going to be um, America's Botany Bay, it was going to be a penal colony. And, you know, the fact that they didn't find the island um, or the, you know, that they didn't officially establish a penal colony. Um, which is one of the main kind of symbols of uh, imperial or colonial prison system, 
has has made us not see or made it harder to see the fact that they were already using forced transportation banishment you know outside of uh, the bounds of the US as punishment they were you know convicting people and selling them downriver separating them from their families and this kind of thing um and so you know there were all kinds of proposals um over the course of the of the 19th and early 20th century. But um, what you see, you know, is that it's kind of represents the staying power of planning the federal prison system in expansionist terms. So not only in overseas colonies, but in the 60s and 70s, you know, people like Huey Newton and other people in the Black Power Movement are talking about prisons as slave ships on dry land, but also as penal colonies because of they are much more far flung and, and, and much further away from people's uh, families, communities, networks of support and belonging. And that's, you know, very intentional. You can look at current policies or recent policies like Project Exile, which created harsher uh, mandatory minimum sentences for certain types of charges that would uh, send people further uh, away to prisons, this kind of far-flung network of prisons. And and Ben, Tugging a little bit um, more on that thread, talk about the ways in which the Monroe Penal, Jefferson Monroe Penal Doctrine worked out alongside the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, um, you know this was another um, kind of uh, mom- pivotal moment in the development of federal prison policy. Was you know Jefferson at the time didn't think that it was feasible because people wouldn't want to pay for it. Um, and so they were looking at different schemes, you know, to involve private corporations and companies at the time, the kind of transnational companies were in the business of slave trading. Um, and he, you know, argued that the only ships outfitted for, you know, the transport of human cargo were slave ships. And so they were looking to the British Sierra Leone company and other, um, and others to try to kind of subsidize the cost of the prison system through the transatlantic slave trade. And I think, you know, it represents the nexus of public and private, um, in the, in the way that the prison system has developed historically. All right. A couple more definitions. I'm going to start with penal colonization. What is that? Yeah, it's the um, the use of of penal colonies. Um, it's the idea in the nineteenth century that was happening um, in in a lot of emper- empires, a lot of European empires, that people convicted of crime should be banished um, to other uh, places. So you know, it's most famously associated with the British Empire's penal colonies in Australia, um, and also the way that the British Empire sent a lot of. Uh, Europeans convicted of crimes to the U.S., I mean, to the then like, North America. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Benjamin Weber about his book, American Purgatory, Prison, Imperialism, and the Rise of Mass Incarceration. Ben, you touched on this uh, a little bit earlier, too, but I want to dig deeper into it. There's a lot of talk now, and, and largely in part because of the film 13th, about the 13th Amendment and people understanding more about the ways in which that um, it allows for slave labor now inside of American prisons. Where did the idea from idea for that clause come from? What was the political context? Yeah. You know, in 13th, um, the, the, the 
the convict clause is the exception um, for slavery and involuntary servitude to be used as punishment for crime. Um, and it, it originates in the Northwest Ordinance in uh, 1787, which is otherwise um, outlawing slavery in territories north of the Ohio, northwest of the Ohio River, except um, you know, uh, in, as punishment for crime. And, and, and then it goes on to say, you know, within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And so those places over successive eras of empire building included a vast expanse of land across North America, included places like Puerto Rico and Panama, Canal Zone and the Philippines. Um, and, and one of the things that you see is that the, you know, plantation labor, prison slavery in places like the Philippines, the, the Iwahig penal colony um, at the turn of the 20th century, the U.S. run prison farm in the Philippines, plantation labor um, there looks a lot like prison labor on Parchman Farm and uh, forced the road gangs, road building in the Panama Canal Zone looks a lot like the chain gangs um, in the South during the same period. Um, and so this provision for allowing for prison slavery, you know, originates in 1787. It's still in law to this day um, in state and federal law. Um, and so, you know, it's really the longest lasting and farthest reaching uh, piece of, of policy. And there's, you know, a movement to end it, as I'm sure you and, and many of your listeners are aware, um, which is, you know, a really important uh, thing to mobilize behind. What, what do you think the, the block is, Ben? Yeah. A country that says it denounces slavery, a country that says it denounces, you know, um, I say racial purgatory. Um, and yet what to me should seem like, well, yeah. I have my views about the American government, as my listeners know. But like what a rational person would think the American government would look at and say, yeah, let's get rid of this. But what's, what's the blockage here? Yeah. Uh, great question. It's, you know, I think it's been different at, at different moments uh, in the in the history. But right now, you know, seven states have uh, recently, like in the last five or, or so years, voted to end uh, prison slavery, to, to end that exception for slavery and voluntary servitude. It was on the ballot in California and Louisiana last year and did not get enough votes. There's a movement in New York called 13th Forward, um, led by uh, some of the activists in this book and and others um, to end prison slavery in New York. And uh, there's a national network to abolish prison slavery. You know, I think it is a growing movement. I think there's a growing awareness uh, about uh, the need to do this. But, you know, part of the block is dealing with the long histories and legacies that have associated the prison system with racial slavery, um, with racial violence and the way that that's tied up um, with people's unexamined ideas about what the prison system is and should do. And yeah, I think as the country continues to reckon with um, the history of slavery, it's it's a really important time of, of movement building around reckoning with um, the legacies of uh, colonialism and racism in the prison system. And this seems like a really clear point of entry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ben, what role did mainstream media, or as you call it in your book, the white press, play in creating support for penal colonization? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and, and in that, in the 19th century, you know, there's, there's a, there's a piece on the black press and, and how they were seeing these things differently, you know, and, and, um, trying really hard to, um, kind of show how these things were different, but, you know, um, similar to today, there were, uh, kind of billionaire moguls behind certain, you know, at that time it was the penny press and these kind of, uh, lurid crime, (laughs) Uh, tabloid style um, things that would kind of whip people into a frenzy. Olden day doomsday loops. (laughs) (laughs) Right. 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 Um, And so, you know, the, I think there are a lot of parallels between um, the kind of fear mongering and stuff that, you know, was called out, um, you know, around the Willie Horton and around um, the Central Park Five and, and more recent, you know, examples where the press became a platform for um, exaggerating and causing all sorts of outsized harm. And and it's also important to remember that that there have been, you know, the role of, of the black press in, in the 19th century in that chapter in, in opposing the expansion of the prison system and the use of prison slavery to re-enslave black people in the South after the Civil War. You know, it's also important to kind of realize that these are these are particular sites of struggle um, over what narratives are are amplified, what people are are told, and and um, how we how we engage these questions then and now. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Benjamin Weber about his book, American Purgatory: Prison Imperialism and the Rise of Mass Incarceration. Benjamin, the left these days sees labor, for the most part, as an ally when it comes to racial and social justice issues. Where did they sit at the time when it came to a stance on penal colonization? Yeah, you know, I think this is this is a difficult one because, like you say, these are these are important sources of of solidarity and potential solidarity, and yet they haven't always manifested. They haven't always been there, you know. Um, Du Bois talked about the wages of whiteness as a kind of psychological blinder um, for certain working people where, you know, white supremacy offered advantages to white people that weren't always material advantages in terms of like their economic self-interest. And so the, you know, the mainstream labor movement in the 19th century was, was, not always aligned with uh, black activists and intellectuals and activists of all uh, colors and who were and backgrounds who were trying to um, stop the expansion of of the prison system, um, and you know the uh, ended up you know supporting it in part because they didn't want competition with convict made goods um, on the industrial side. Um, and in part because of this long history um, of kind of uh, the wages of whiteness where the the state and, and others, um, there have been advantages to this kind of idea of, of white working men that um, are not material, they're ideological. Well, let's keep it 100. I mean, we have hard conversations on this show, and I love labor. I'm a union girl, but I'm also a, a prison abolitionist and um, an activist to end state violence. And the reality is, is that a lot of the legislation that we try to pass, both at the state and federal level, around um, reining in police violence is blocked by labor because they look at the union, and I put that in air quotes, I don't believe um, that police are labor, but they're protecting workers. 
So again, connections from past to present. These tensions show up in in every, you know, in every kind of struggle over budgets, over reallocating um, public funds, you know, in, in each, you know, particular place. We are, we've got about 10 minutes left, Ben, and I don't want to end this interview without addressing what you call the Wallace prison in your book, Parole. Um, what are its origins in the American carceral system and what are the falsehoods about it being any type of freedom? Yeah. Um, so the, you know, the, it's funny, we can kind of work our way backwards um, historically, but, you know, recently there is a piece on, you know, the wall, the promise of the Wallace prison, you know, um, as being a good alternative to, um, or a good solution for decarceration and all the rest. But, you know, it has always been a fantasy of colonial governance. Um, and so, you know, there's a prison in the Philippines that's called the prison without walls. And there's a prison, a federal prison in, in off the coast of the Pacific Northwest on, on McNeil Island that was called this at the time. And, you know, the idea was um, to create stages of supervision, degrees of unfreedom um, that could be used to control people. And, you know, it, it had this net widening effect where, um, you know, it, it, in the name of reform, it actually pulled uh, more and more people into the carceral system. And so, you know, I think that's, it's a cautionary tale um, about, you know, really looking at the history for what's done. And so something that a lot of people associate with um, shortened sentences, with getting out early, um, actually ended up lengthening sentences um, and lengthening the time that people were under some form of correctional supervision. Um, and there, you know, are, are other parallels. Um, but yeah, the the prison without walls is a, it's a recurring fantasy of colonial governance. And we see it growing, right, with the advent of more and more technological ways of keeping people um, imprisoned from their homes, right? Um, electronic monitoring, bracelets, surveillance, et cetera, a multi-billion dollar business at this point in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the, you know, the book talks about how this is um, prison imperialism's next frontier, how this, you know, isn't just a creature of the past, but reckoning with these histories helps us think about the way the spread of those technologies um, of facial recognition, ankle bracelets, um, the kinds of things that you're saying. And you know, right here in the Bay Area, the Center for Media Justice does great work on this. Um, and James Kilgore's thing on e-carceration does really good work on this. But it is, uh, you know, part of part of digging into these histories, it allows us to kind of recognize um, where new technologies are are being spread that are that are increasing the um, reach of and harm of the carceral state, um, and also the way that those are continue to be pioneered in overseas war making. So, you know, the way that Palantir developed technologies in, in war making in Iraq and Afghanistan that then showed up in street cameras in New Orleans and other cities and the way that technologies at security checkpoints and, and whatnot are being kind of forced on places all over the world. Um, and so, yeah, that uh, certainly prison imperialism's next frontier, what's what's being called e-carceration. Benjamin Weber, when you look at this current political moment, when the backlash to the movement for Black lives and defund and reimagine are in full swing, 
with a law and order drumbeat. What purpose do you hope this book serves in the right now in terms of our movement? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I'm still hopeful despite the backlash and the front lash and <laughs> um, the way that um, these things, you know, I, I do see a kind of growing um, shift in consciousness. I do see growing kind of commitment to movement building. I see it in young people um, in the classroom. I see it, um, you know, in different places um, around the country. And so, um, you know, I, I am still still hopeful um, that there is, this has, you know, marked a kind of uh, shift in people's willingness to um, reckon with the histories of of racism and colonialism and that and that ultimately people do not want to live in a world governed by racism. <laughs> you know, that's how Angela Davis put it in Our Prisons Obsolete. She was like, if you don't want to live in a world governed by racism, and also in this case colonialism, um, you have to reckon with these histories and, and living legacies and commit to building a better and more just world. But Ben, and not to, to end on a doomsday note, but if we look at our last presidential and how close it came, it seems that at least half of our country does want to live in that world. Yeah, I think, you know, what that did was um, it brought out into broad daylight exactly what we're dealing with. Um, and so, you know, if there was any silver lining, it's like at least um, it's clear how many people are, you know, um, you know, before I think people were hiding and it may have been a little more nefarious. And I mean, it's always been nefarious, but, you know, I do remain hopeful that they are not, in fact, the majority. And like we talked about before, they are certainly not the global majority. Ben, anything I haven't asked you that you would like to leave our listeners with today? I mean, I think it's important to think about books um, not just as, you know, uh, sources of history and knowledge and all that, but as a, as a platform for movement building. Um, and so I would encourage listeners to, um, you know, read the book and, and also look um, at the um, kinds of things that, are grow, that grow out of the history of people who have internationalized the struggle who have gone beyond the terms of domestic politics alone to find an anti-colonial analysis, a decolonial framework, that that's not just a buzzword. It has a long history um, and, and a real um, theoretical drive. Um, and that incorporating those lessons from people who have internationalized the struggle by, you know, taking it um, into a human rights framework by, um, and, and by, going to the UN to, to make sure that people are aware of political prisoners in the U.S. like Leonard Peltier and, and Mumia and, and others, you know, I'd encourage listeners to go look at the Jericho movement that was co-founded by uh, Jaleel Muntikim, who's in this book, um, co-founded with Sophia Bukhari, um, that has done really, really good work on political prisoners um, to check out things that grow out of this history that we were talking about, like the National Network to abolish prison slavery and, and um and things like that. Um, so yeah, that the, the history is always in, in service of, um, the present struggles. 
Great words to end on. You all have been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today has been Benjamin Weber. Benjamin Weber is an assistant professor of African-American and African Studies at University of California, Davis. He has worked at the Vera Institute of Justice, Alternate Roots, the Marcus Garvey and UNIA Paper Project, and as a public high school teacher in East Los Angeles. He lives in Davis, California. His book that we've been discussing today is American Purgatory, Prison Imperialism, and the Rise of Mass Incarceration. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kat. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.